Let's turn to Psalm 139 as we uh, examine God's Word together today. We're going to be looking at, uh, well, I, I, I'll explain to you my, my conundrum today as we look at this verse, at this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I say that a lot, but I like this book a lot. So anyway, let's go to Psalm 139 I invite you to stand, and we will read it all in its entirety, and I'll explain to you my uh, con- desire at the end to figure out what to do next. All right, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, and when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, you would bless your word. I pray, God, that you transform us now as we learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. I was sharing with Zach beforehand, I have, as it would be termed in the uh, theological nerd category, an exegetical conundrum. And that is how much of this to preach today. Because there is a whole lot there. And we're starting this message right now. The clock says 1134. And if I were to really do this justice, you would probably walk out and go watch a football game. Because there's a lot going on here, even if your favorite team isn't playing, which I don't think anyone's favorite team is playing today. Anyway, um, so uh, I planned today, here's the deal, is that the, the passage about God's omniscience, God's omnipresent, that's the today's passage title, or message title, is ever-present. That's really what we're going to examine today, and that's what Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, uh, was addressing through this. Now, in my 
my practice in preaching things is I like to stay within the context. And he does address it within the context here, but he doesn't look, use the whole psalm. And I look at this and I go, oh, there's so much there. And then we just got started by reading through it. And his basis is found in verses 7 through 10. But I kind of think I may come back to next week because if, if we look at verses 17 through 24, if I get through verse 16 today, verses 17 through 24 have lots of questions you probably want answered as we read through that. And uh, so we may spend two weeks here just for, for kicks. But anyway, in studying this passage this week, I ran across a, uh, a, com- a commentary quote that I want to read to you. I don't do this often. This is from a commentary by Donald Williams. Um, who you probably don't know. He was a pastor in California. And I want you to guess what decade he wrote this in. Spoiler alert, it's not the 2020s. Okay? It is clear today that many people suffer from a lack of intimate relationships. Our technological society has made it possible for us to live in one city, work in another, and relate to people in another. This has led to a significant breakdown in community. At the same time, we function in a highly competitive society. We tend to look upon people as combatants rather than as companions. We constantly judge how we are measuring up and find little freedom to share our struggles and our weaknesses with each other for fear that they will be used against us. In this decade, that's why I want you to think about this, in this decade, style has replaced substance as our preoccupation. We are excessively concerned about the image that we project to people because we are uncertain that there is anything behind it. People also tend to become means to our ends rather than the ends themselves and themselves. We all know how it feels to be used, stepped on, and stepped over. At the bottom of all of this is a spiritual sickness. Our lack of intimacy with each other comes from our lack of intimacy with God. The recovery of intimacy starts with allowing God to become intimate with us. This is what he desires, and he will do it if we will let him. Anybody want to just take a guess, toss out a decade when this was written? 80s? Okay. 90s? Those of you who call the 80s, you get the gold star. This, uh, this commentary, which you, I, I tried to hide the cover from you because it almost gave it away. Art is art echoes culture, right? This is a very 80s cover. Um, this is a commentary that I picked up along the way. Uh, it was a freebie given to me. I've got the whole set. It looks really good on my bookshelf. Um, they're all just nice and tan when they line up. Anyway, um, so, uh, but yeah, this was published, and it's one of the ones, uh, this series is one I use frequently. But think about that. That's the 80s. Did that sound much different than today? When we look at Psalm 139, David lived 3,000 years ago. Do the things he goes through in this psalm sound that different from today? When we talk about how we relate to one another and how we relate to God, the problem is and always has been the same. It's that we end up disconnected and think that this God is more a deistic entity, one that is separate, that has set maybe things in motion and doesn't care about where we are right now. 
But if we look at Psalm 139, if we look at numerous psalms from David, 73 of them he wrote, we will find that David wrestled with that question consistently. Where are you, God? But one of the wonderful things about David in his honesty, and that's what we see at the end of the psalm, I think, is how he relates to one another, how, how, how we relate to one another. He, he wants to have that kind of passion in that. One of the things we see in David's honesty is he recognizes that God, this good God that we serve, is not distant in our trials and our struggles. Even if we feel like we are far away from God, it's always one step towards Him. He's always there waiting for you to come to this place here. And so as we have all these problems and relate to one another, I think a vast majority of the people in the room right now can probably remember something about the 1980s. Maybe not. That's okay. Don't judge me. I can. I, one of my earliest memories is of the 1984 Olympics, all right, and the 1984 election and, and those kinds of things that happened there. That's kind of when I started really cataloging things going on in my world. It was about second grade. I know some of you just go, oh, 77. Yes, I was born in 1977. It's okay. Sorry, you were all born one day too. Okay, I can't do anything about my height or my age or my hair. Neither can, well, you can do more about your hair than I can. But anyway, you can't do those things about that. The thing is, is that we think that today the problems we're facing in the 2020s and the echoes of a pandemic and, and seeing it go on indefinitely and wonder what's next and seeing all these things in the world that feel like they're falling down around us, whatever end of the political aisle, whether you fall in the middle somewhere. We need to realize that none of this is foreign to God and it's not unexpected. He is always there, and He always knows what our greatest problem is, and that is our sin. And in His goodness and His graciousness, we come to a verse like verse 1 in Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. Not only does God realize that we're there, He knows each one of us. And not in this sense of, you know, I got to shake a famous person's hand one time. You know, in the early 60s, my dad was in a choir event in Miami, Florida, and Billy Graham stepped on his foot. That's not what we're talking about right here, right? Or that I could say at one point in my childhood, I got to shake hands with the governor of New Mexico. Or, name it, famous people. I've got a picture in my office with two tall Jones. Who remembers who that is? Right? Cowboys fans out there, thank you. All right. He was the 6'9 defensive end. He was a hero of my childhood. All right, so anyway. I can't say that I could call him up now and say, hey, you remember that one time in Best Buy in Lake Worth in 2004? You remember when you took your picture with me? He'd be like, you know how many pictures I've taken with people who are going, hey, it's too tall. So many of us think that just because we shook somebody's hands, we know that person. And the fact is, is that we can come into the presence of someone 
that we have known for years and not really know what makes them tick. Or what makes them tick today is different than what makes them tick 25 years ago. But God, and that's the, that's the caveat to everything, but God has searched us and he knows us. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You, reach, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. How you talk about being paranoid and at the camera watching you at all times. God knows everything about us. And yet we're still here. Now God is a jealous God and he is jealous of his praise. And he does not allow that to, to, be, uh, to be taken from him. Think about Herod in the book of Acts. What happens when people praised him like a god? He literally exploded. You can go read it later. Go find it. It's the book of Acts. God is jealous of his praise. Why? Because he is the only one worthy to be praised. But he's not looking at that moment to where if we mess up, he's going to zap us. And if that was the case, Jesus never would have stepped foot on earth. It would have been like this picture of the Greek and Roman gods of ancient times. Where we just hope that somehow we will be recipients of the merciful hand that will not destroy us. Not only are we recipients of that merciful hand, he wants to walk with us through that trial. And through that storm like we sang about earlier. He knows everything about us. He knows before we even speak what we are going to say. How do I know that? Verse 4, it says, Every, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God is eternal. He knows you better than you know yourself. And He has already exercised His mercies in your life. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We need to come to a place where we realize God's great knowledge of us and His great mercy in that knowledge. He loves you. He knows you. But the question we must respond with then is, do we know Him? And see, that's what the pursuit of God is about. Tozier, and I got a quote from him in there. I, I, I dug this one out. Chapter 5, Pursuit of God, says, The approach of God to the soul... I'm oh, sorry. Let me read this again because he speaks differently than I do. Approach of God to the soul or of the soul to God is not to be thought of in spatial terms at all. There is no idea of physical distance involved in the concept. It is not a matter of miles, but of experience. So our knowledge of God has nothing to do, or God's knowledge of us has nothing to do with whether or not we stepped foot in a certain place at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. It has everything to do with that He is the all-knowing, ever-present God, omniscient, all-knowing, ever-omnipresent, ever-present and there are ramifications for that in our personal lives, and there's ramifications for that within the life of the church as well. But we should realize that God is never far away. 
He is always right there waiting for us to turn to Him, to trust Him in those scenarios, in those complications, in those troubles in our lives. And even in the good times, to trust Him in there too. Because so many times when things are going good, we're like, all right, I got my stuff together. I'm doing good. I'm going to go do this or that. And then I go and I get in a fender bender along the way and the rest of my day is shot. But everything at 9 o'clock this morning was perfect. At 9.08, it was not. Did God miss that along the way? No. It's a moment where we can experience His presence and, and His guidance in our struggle. We can't escape Him. It says that in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be about, me at uh, about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The whole point of this passage is not to get lost in this whole picture of his light darkness and what kind of theological problem we're here. The fact is, is that God sees things the way God sees things, and we th- see these things from our perspective. God sees things in eternity. We run into it and deal with it in our own experience. God is not a distant God who is up in heaven that only kind of looks down every moment in time. And as I was studying this week, I came to this picture of God knowing about each human on earth and knowing about their experience. And there are more than, right at this moment, more than 7 billion people on earth with a B, billion. God knows everything about them, and He pursues them. He pursues them through His church. And I'm going to come back to that in a second there. As He calls us to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why we have missionaries throughout the world. That's why He has placed you as a missionary in your family and in your neighborhood and in your job. He has called each of us to be His presence. So there's a sense of, yes, God is here because He is, he, he is omnipresent. But He is also omnipresent within the work of the church. Because the Holy Spirit inhabits the church. Not the building, the people. Ecclesia is the word that church is derived from. That word means gathering. Or those that are drawn together. And he calls us together to this universal pursuit of him. The pursuit of God. Let's look at a couple other verses Along the way, still in the Psalms, Psalm 28, I'm sorry, 27, verse 8. Psalm 27. That's a great psalm as well. We could spend the whole time there. I might have preached it. I did preach it three years ago, three and a half years ago. Psalm uh, Psalm 27, verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, "Your your face, Lord, do I seek. God calls us to pursue him as he has pursued us. And what does that mean? It means that we have this holy pursuit, that somehow 
Something is different about us that, that has changed. That is the presence of the Lord. How does that happen? It happens in the New Testament, even though we live in the Old Testament here today. It happens in the New Testament through the person Jesus Christ as He pays, his price, pays our price for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that in Him we might have the right to become the righteousness of God. That we are with Him. He empowers us. And the only way that we can truly seek God is Jesus. And so realizing who He is and what He has done for us. But I think it's worthwhile to go back into the Old Testament because we realize that that pursuit, that grace has been present the whole time. He calls us in that place. Uh, Jeremiah 29. Oh, man, Jeremiah 29. Let's go there. So good. Hey, I preach that sometime, too. December 3rd, 2017. Who remembers? I'm sorry. Jeremiah 29 is phenomenal. The circumstances of Jeremiah. He is the prophet to Judah during the days that Jerusalem falls to Babylon. It is a sad, terrible day. It is depressing. It is where you see the glory of the Lord literally depart that city and the temple. The temple is destroyed. They burn it down. They melt it. They catch the gold and take it back with them to Babylon. They take all of these elements along the way. And there were mistakes made by the kings through the years that compounded and made it even worse. But chapter 29, Jeremiah tells, or the Lord through Jeremiah tells his people he has not forgotten them. As a matter of fact, in their exile, as they live thousands of miles from where they want to be, he tells them, plant gardens, get married. Marry off your children. Pray and work to the betterment of the city in which you are called there. Those of you who feel like you're in Pueblo against your will, you need to read Jeremiah chapter 29. Because God calls us to this place to fulfill His purpose. And His purpose for them is His glory. That he would be glorified. Verse 11, very familiar to many of us. We talk about it in, in the face of the unknown. In verse 7, which where it says, talks about uh, to, to work towards the welfare of the city in which you've been called. But now, in verse 11, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your hearts. So if you want to find God, we need to come to the place where we realize it's a matter of our hearts more than our location. Being in His Word, we learn that He is already there. He especially is within his church. He has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we can see the glory of his creation. And one of the things Tozer deals with in his text is, is dealing with pantheists or those who, who think that all of creation is God. And what's the, my Greek word for stuff like that? 
Ah, baloney, that's it. Baloney. We're all creations. We are all part of creation. And there is nothing in this world that is worthy of worship. These trees, as wonderful as they are, to provide us shade in the summer, are not worthy of praise. As a matter of fact, in other psalms, it says that the rocks cry out. All creation brings glory to the king. All of what we see is designed to show us God's goodness. So to worship anything that is created, and that means another person as well, when we look at you know, the way we use terminology in our world that shows like American Idol and, and things like that, there's just no point. And in the Old Testament, we see the judgment fall for those things. We see it in the New Testament as well because ultimately the problem that Jesus addresses is idolatry. We worship other things except for the God that, that created us. And that's our problem. And so he pays the price for our sin. Whatever we run into, the challenges we face, we need to realize that God is there when we seek Him. And my encouragement to you and my challenge to you is to recognize the grace that He has given us that we have the privilege to seek Him. There is no one human that does not stand in the same place before the throne of the Father. Kings or peasants, and everything in between. God draws us to Him. So, coming before Him, He gives us the opportunity to worship Him. So, I ask you today, have you given that reverence to the Lord? Have you shown been sh- to receive the grace that He has offered us in Jesus Christ? For we are all sinners, and the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Salvation is a gift. It's not something we can earn. But but God seeks us, and in response, we have the opportunity to seek Him. And He's there. He is with us. I'll close with verses six, uh, 13 through 16. For you know, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed me when as yet there was none of them god knows you and he has a plan for you will you seek him today lord you are faithful to us you are gracious to us in your day and in your in i'm sorry in our day may we um, may we realize the grace you've given us that we might pursue you and I pray that in, in those hearts that hear your word today, that we would realize how deeply you love us. 
and how you long for that fellowship with us. Change us, change our hearts, that we would seek you today. In Jesus' name.